You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Well, I'm excited to introduce our guests for today. We've got Melissa Flora Bixler. She is a writer and pastor with degrees from Duke University and Princeton Theological Seminary. Her ministry at Raleigh Mennonite Church has been featured in The Atlantic and Sojourners. She writes for G's Magazine, Christian Century, Mennonite World Review, and The Mennonites, among others. She is the author of Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament, which came out in 2019, and most recently, How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger and the Work of Peace, which is fresh off the press. Melissa lives with her husband and three children in Raleigh, North Carolina. Melissa, welcome to uh, Inverse Podcast. It's been a while. I feel like we haven't crossed paths in a while, but welcome. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Drew, and I'm good to get to spend some time with Jared for the first time. So good to be here. Thanks. Likewise, Melissa. Hey, uh, we wanted to give you the opportunity. Would you sketch for us just a little bit about the new book and um, uh, the the contents thereof? Sure. Yeah, I um, was uh, feeling this urgency, I think, as um, many of us in the United States have over the past year, and try to make sense of, of just the experience of what it was like to be a Christian, and in my case, a pacifist and a Mennonite, um, living through uh, the Trump administration. And um, as I'm sure I know there's people from the US and other places as well, but I think we all got a pretty good sense of how divisive that administration was for the church. And um, and I think what often we were hearing, um, especially in Anabaptist traditions that are centered on peace and reconciliation is, you know, we, um, we need to look for a third way. There needs to be sort of a different, you know, we need to love our enemies in the midst of this. Um, and I'd, I've, I've wrestled with that. Um, I've never, in, like in a way that I've never wrestled with this before. Um, like we've just had the kind of partisan sorting happen in our country that, you know, um, like you, you look back and, and look at the, at Bill Clinton's immigration, um, statements and it's basically looks like the same thing Trump was, it was saying, you know, like, it's just not like that anymore. Um, and so this, this real set, like a very, very strong sense of both trauma and animosity. Um, and so that question is still there for us. Um, what does it mean to love our enemies in this moment? Um, and I, I just needed other people than the resources that had been, that I had traditionally relied on. Um, there was because of the visceralness of this. And, and I really needed um, reading partners who, um, theologians who had sort of, their lives had been made at the center of socioeconomic enmity um, and whiteness in, in the U.S. and in um, 
uh, in civil war, in um, places of, of degradation and pain throughout, throughout history, and to let those voices be the ones that taught me what it meant to love. Um, and so that's really where um, this book emerged, sort of a, a project for myself that I hope might be helpful for others as well. Very good, very good. Well, we're looking forward to dialoguing more around this idea around loving enemies with you. Um, but before we do that, you know, one of the things that we would like to do is kind of just set the tone um, with scripture. And so do you have a passage for us that you'd like to ground our conversation around today? Yeah, I was so excited when you um, sent this to me because, you know, like Mennonites and you know, we love the Bible. We love to talk about the Bible. So this is such a great opportunity to talk about um, scripture with you all. Um, and the passage I picked was Mary's song um, from Luke 1 right up there at the beginning of Luke. And you want me to read it, right? Is yeah, yes, please. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you would. All right. Um, so context, I, I think, is important for this. So this, Mary's actually speaking these words to Elizabeth, her cousin, um, who the baby has just left in her womb at the sound of, of, um, the, uh, of the voice of Mary, right? And the mother of my Lord. So this is actually, a, this is women, um, like, it, like the women at the very, like, uh, like under the boot of just about every sort of socioeconomic category you can imagine who, to whom this word is given. So that's sort of the context. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For God has looked with favor on the lowliness of God's servant, Surely from now, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is God's name. God's mercy is for those who fear God from generation to generation. God has shown strength with God's arm, has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God has served, God has helped God's servant Israel in remembrance of God's mercy, according to the promise made to our ancestors, to Abraham, and I will say Sarah and Hagar and Leah, and to God's descendants forever. Amen. 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 Melissa, um, anybody who's been listening to inverse for a little bit, we'll know that um, we try and take seriously biography as theology. So we'd love to ask, when do you first remember encountering the scriptures? You, you mentioned that Mennonites um, uh, love their Bible. Um, uh, your first encounter with the Bible, do you have specific memories? Yeah, I grew up in the church. Uh, so the, the Bible has always been with me um, and uh, it's it's one of those things where I don't you know I don't think I began to notice the Bible until um, until I until it became problematic right <laughs> that's um, like I, I remember these stories being a part of my life and being a part of Sunday morning and rituals and um, and it it was just sort of like the water you drank like you just you you don't really think about it very much. Um, and so really the first time that I have like a strong memory of the Bible um, is learning that Paul says that women shouldn't speak in church. 
Mm-hmm. That was the very first memory. Um, and this, it really, it, it, I look back on this as one of these um, moments where I, I have learned to trust the spirit because of what happened next. I was in my room and I was crying. <laughs> I, I could not believe that this God that I loved, who had created me, who um, would say something this awful <laughs> through, through this person, Paul, who was supposed to be this authority. And at that moment, my father walked past my bedroom and saw me crying and came in and he said, oh my gosh, what's going on? And it's like, this, can you believe that this says this in the Bible, dad? And he, and, and he sat down with me and it was the first time someone explained to me that these were churches that were, that were struggling with these specific conflicts. So, you know, I'm probably like 11 years old at this point. And, you know, they're, you know, it's like a, basically all of the things that are now very much a part of like how I read scripture, but taught to me by my father um, in this moment where he just happened to be walking by. Um, and so, and so really shifted for me in that moment. Um, and, and also began what has been significant to me that we, that it matters who we read the Bible with, right? Yeah. Like that the yeah. solo exercise of reading scripture can often be painful and lonely. Um, and scripture can change so much depending on who our partners are in, in reading. Wow. You know, you just made a memory come up for me, which is, it's almost the reverse of that, right? Uh, not a good memory, a little bit shameful to even tell the story, but I'm thinking I was probably 12, um, two years, um, me and my brother were not doing good in school. We were getting into trouble. And so my parents took us out of public school and for two years sent us to Philmont Christian Academy, Philadelphia Montgomery Christian Academy, right? And I just, as you were talking, had this memory of being in Bible class and reading one of these texts around, you know, the role of women in the church. And of course, at that time, steeped in patriarchy. And so there I am getting quite a lot of positive attention for kind of reinforcing these kind of patriarchal takes, right? So talk about both early memories of these moments, but also who you're reading with, right? This Mm. Christian school space that's actually affirming and building up these kind of interpretations as well. And so anyway, that just came to mind as you're kind of telling your story. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm curious, when you think about, you know, your upbringing, your engagement with the Bible, would you say that overall that your encounters with the Bible were more uh, liberative, oppressive, healing, harming, something else? Uh, how would you describe um, those relationships um, with, with the scriptures? Yeah, I mean, overall, like the the one of the things that I really knew is that God loved me and um, God created me and, and there was something very um, essential to who I was about that. And so that was really, that was always with me. Um, but it was, but what, what got weird, um, because I actually did grow up in the Mennonite church. Um, I grew up in the, in the Episcopal church and the conservative end of the Episcopal church and um, was just that people I did not think were very serious about the Bible. <laughs> like they, like, you know, as we got older, you know, you, I've, so it was sort of this, 
yeah, you know, we have military, military contractors in our church, but when Jesus talks about that stuff about like, love your enemy, like, but let, but we're also sort of realistic about like how much of that we can do here. And so it was always sort of like Bible, but also we just sort of have to work within our context here to kind of figure out what, like which parts of this we actually want to like really live into. And of course the parts that we all really wanted to live into were the parts about marriage, um, you know, and no divorce. Like that was a really big one. I never heard anybody talk about Jesus saying that you had to choose between mammon and God. Like that, that never came up. Um, and, and so there was this, for me, it was more like, oh, the Bible is this thing that we just can sort of use when it's useful. And there's these people who've been set aside, these priests and pastors to tell me when, when like when, when the important stuff is there. And the rest of it is just sort of like, you know, like, we all can't really be poor. Like there's all, you know, like if we were all poor, what would happen then? Um, and so there's always sort of an excuse out of it. Um, so yeah, kind of just blah, I guess. Interesting. <laughs> That's great. Um, Melissa, uh, if, if you were to kind of um, talk about the ingredients for like your hermeneutical recipe, like what are the, what are the particular things that um, it, it is not a Melissa reading unless these elements are in the mix. Um, uh, for those who are, are seeking to um, read the scriptures in ways that do turn our world upside down from your own journey, what are the things that you've um, come to hold the conviction that these things have to be in the mix for it to um, uh, be able to be liberative? Mm. Well, really for me, a big shift in, in for my understanding of that, you know, the priests are going to tell me what are the important parts that I need to pay attention to what was coming to the Mennonite church and where we actually had a communal hermeneutic of reading scripture. Um, and so this is enacted in my congregation every Sunday because after our, uh, after the sermon, we have this, what is actually, you know, a 16th century practice that we continue today. Um, we just call it sharing time, but it is really a time for communal discernment of scripture. Um, mm. It's the time where we say, um, this, the, the word continues to be preached among us through the congregation. And so this is the time, the invitation is, where did you sense the Holy Spirit moving in um, in the service, in the prayers we prayed, in the words that were preached, in the songs that were sung, and the testimonies that were given. Um, and that really becomes, I think, central to our life as a congregation. And it comes near the end, right? You know, like the important part, if it's Eucharist, you put that at the end. If it's the sermon, you put that at the end. And for us, it's the communal discernment comes at the end. Um, mm. That, because that is the place that um, sends us out into the world where the word is then realized in our lives. We come back changed by that word and the process begins again. Um, and so, yeah, so trusting the spirit to move among us, to move among the people um, and, um, and for us to um, read um, with, uh, with, with our whole lives. Um, so, you know, there's no really, I, it's really important to me that our church sort of break down that barrier between 
oh, it's like worship and then we sort of do life and then we kind of like, this is an oasis. We come to get filled up again and then we go out again. Um, but there's a, but worship is actually something that, that changes us, that, that propels us into whatever we do the rest of the week and returns us again. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's been something significant to me. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when I think about just the practice of um, communal discernment and certainly, I mean, I've, I often joke and say I'm, I'm all Anabaptist because I've moved in a lot of different kind of mm-hmm. Anabaptist spaces. And of course, all, not all Anabaptists practice, right, this kind of communal systems. And many have let that go quite a bit. Right. Um, but I have had the opportunity to preach at midnight churches at I know you interact with Johnny Rashid, right, on Twitter mm-hmm. with Circle yep. of Hope. I've done it there and other spaces where afterwards, you know, then they open up in conversation, right? Um, which was so radically different than what I had grown up experiencing. Um, maybe a little, uh, the dialogical aspect in my Black church growing up was more call and response, but, but mm-hmm. to actually have a conversation afterwards was quite powerful as well. And so I really appreciate um, the implications of that. And I see, saw that most fleshed out. Um, I was a part of um, a group in Philly where they, it was called Kingdom Builders and they would gather and it was Anabaptists from all over the city, right? Uh, Black Mennonites, Latino Mennonites, Asian Mennonites, and some white Mennonites got to, you know, they got to squeeze in there too. And and when we would gather and we would dwell in the, in the word together, that's what we would call it, where somebody would share something and then we'd break into circles um, and, and dialogue and talk about what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And then we'd come back and share what we had learned from each other. And that had been, that it was so formative for me in terms of just changing my own understanding of what it means to read scripture and dialogue with others around scripture. And they, um, to believe truly that the spirit is at work, not just with folks who got the PhD, right? But mm. that God can move and speak through um, whomever God chooses to. And so, yeah, that's a powerful, powerful point. Yeah. 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 And that's where, you know, I, I think that even in those spaces, it's we like, we have to pay attention to power, right? Like, yeah. because it, it it is so easy to defer even in communal spaces to the person who, for whatever reason is, is the, is the person to whom you look for, for wisdom. And, right. and, you know, so one of the, one of sort of the guiding places for me in preaching, um, the, the first is that, um, you know, to, the preaching answers the question, um, what is the good news in the scripture? Um, and the second is, if that good news isn't perceptible um, and cannot be, um, if that news cannot be engaged for our community by a Guatemalan grandmother with a third grade education who faithfully read her Bible every day of her life and raised her six children um, and that, that is her experience. If she cannot sense the good news, because she has, um, if she cannot see herself invited into it and can invite us into her good news, then we have not, then we have not done the work that God has given us to do in proclamation. Um, yeah, so that's, for me, that's, it's also like the, you know, who, who, um, how do you flatten the structure, right? Like, that's always like, so Mennonite pastoring is sort of like whack-a-mole, like you got, like, like you just like think pops up and you're like, okay, we gotta get that down. Like, and then power pops up here, like, boop, we gotta get that down. Um, 
Yeah, so there's this sort of constant sort of like, how do we flatten this? How can we make this so, so that everyone can, can be a part of the work of proclamation? Yeah, no, that's so good. And at, in a second, I want to have you kind of lead us through um, around, you know, this text that you chose. But but I'm, I don't know if you know much about our subversive seminary community and some of the other stuff that we do, but I think you'd appreciate as you talk about whack-a-mole and constantly dealing with, you know, power dynamics, you know, we put in place these practices um, that are intentionally designed to try to subvert, right, the way that normal conversation is going to go about themselves. And so um, when we start off, we always tell our folks, you know, um, if you've been socialized um, so that, you know, your voice matters more than others, um, we invite you to step back, right? Mm. And yeah. for those that have been taught that their voice matters less, um, we actually invite you to step forward. And then we name explicitly, right, race, class, um, gender, sexuality, and encourage especially women of color to lead in our conversations and for white men particularly to step back and to be first listeners right yeah. mm -hmm. um and and by being so explicit it's really a formative way of trying to do that the whack-a-mole right of just kind of you know dealing with the dynamics that are already at work that I think sometimes in flat communities they imagine that there's no more power dynamics yeah. when if you don't name it it's actually precisely that moment, right? When it can wreak its ugly head and, and get out of control. Yeah. Yeah. I was just telling someone this today, you know, in, in a Baptist churches and ba Baptist churches, just because you don't have a bishop doesn't mean that there aren't power holders, right? Oh, yeah. the, um, because again, because of race or because of socioeconomic status, because how long they've been in the church. And so, yeah. How much so money like, they give. How much money they right give. Name, right? That's right. Yeah. They got their name on the, you know, they gave that bench or that, you know, that pew. And and so there's, yeah. So, so it's, those are always with us, right? We're always sort of um, having to attend. So, uh, Melissa, can you walk us through this text together? Let's let's have a conversation. You kind of guide us through um, the the significance of this text that you've picked. Sure. Um, well, well, one thing I'd say is, you know, we um, there's a group from my um, of of people from different Mennonite churches, mostly people from my church, who, since the pandemic has started, uh, we pray together from the Anabaptist prayer book in, in the mornings, uh, Take Our Moments and Our Days is the name of that book. And, and so Mary's song comes up a lot, um, which was, of course, really just fascinating in the timing that's happened in the political discourse over the past year and a half. Um, but one of the, one of the, because we say it so often, um, and one of the, something we've tried is actually reading, um, reading uh, feminine pronouns for, for God in this. And I just want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, um, it really is different to think, to say, she has shown strength with her arm and she has scattered the proud and the thoughts of her heart. Um, and because I, I do think that this, um, this song, um, even though it's from women to women, there is sort of a, a masculine power to it that I, that I think shifts for us when we, um, when, when we are willing to sort of move ourselves back from, I think what often, you know, certainly for me is an inherited masculinity about who God is. Um, and so that would, that would just be my first encouragement. Um, if you haven't had the chance to do that, to say this, um, 
this song aloud um, with with female pronouns. Um, yeah, um, one of the things that I I love about the way that this starts um, is that is that Mary um, talks about how God has looked with favor on her lowliness. Um, it's not just that God has looked with favor upon her. There is something about her social station that is the thing that God is looking at. Um, and I love that because it actually, in some ways, um, as often as the case in the Bible, like from Abraham all the way to um, Mary, takes the sort of emphasis off of what I think we have Im often imported into this, which is that Mary was like better than everybody else, right? Or, right. or holier or purer. Right. Right. And actually that's not the attentive, that's not where we're asked to attend. We're asked to attend to the, the social location that she occupies in this world. Um, and that some, and that, and that this, you know, this is, this is Luke one, this sets the tone, like, this is like a summary of everything that is about to happen, um, except um, all of these verbs are are heiress. They it is a thing that has already happened that is continuing into the present, which is also one of those things that makes you sort of pause, right? Um, it's not one day he will you know he will show strength with his arm. One day he will scout scatter the proud. The, it has already begun. Um, it has already happened. And so that I think also is offered to us to shift our shift everything that is about to happen. Um, somehow this both takes place in time, but this is also uh, the lamb who was slain at the foundation of the world. Um, uh, this is a story that has already encompassed creation um, and it just happens to be playing out in time right now. Um, yeah, and then um, the last the last thing I'll just um, I'll I'll just share to kind of get us started on this is um, just how Luke is totally fine um, like naming the people who are in and who are out like who the people God is for God is um, for people who are who are empty and are hungry and God is sending rich people away. He is scattering the, the, he's scattering proud people. He's casting down people from their thrones. Um, and then what will happen just um, two chapters later in Luke three, when Jesus begins his public ministry, it's sort of like, all oh, this is a preface. And then Luke is like, all right, so we're gonna name some names now. So we've got this guy, and we've got these guys, Caiaphas and, and, and Ananias, and we've got this guy, Herod, and we've got this guy, Pilate. Like, like Luke is not afraid like to name who are the people who, he, who Mary is talking about here. He sets a political scene for us um, and in a way that I think, we are much more anxious about, you know, about naming our enemies. And Luke is not worried, does not carry that anxiety at all. Um, and so that for us, I think help is a question of like, who, like, what does it mean to, for us to be anxious about naming political enemies? Um, when Luke, like, what does it mean about the community who this is written for versus the communities that we're cultivating now? Yeah. Um, yeah, so those are just, those are some things to sort of get us started talking. 
Melissa, as uh, we've mentioned in the conversation before, power's come up a, a number of times. I, I deeply appreciate how um, your your uh, research and writing about enemies really focuses on power. Um, it, it makes sense of uh, not merely Luke's gospel, but the gospels generally, and why Jesus would be crucifiable to um, the power structures, the, the, the fact that um, there is this inherent confrontation. And yet I'm so aware, and um, uh, your particular geographical location has made it a virtue of, um, in the diversities of cultures that are America, there's large parts of your nation where conflict avoidance is seen as a, uh, as a virtue, as um, uh, something to strive for, um, uh, that um, niceness is almost um, equated with sanctification. Um, I I'm wondering, particularly with the release of your book, uh, how, how has um, uh, your encouragement uh, to enter into the confrontation of Jesus been received? in cultures where niceness is so often prized above all else? Um, that's a great question. You know, I think this is always the question about books is um, who, <laughs> who reads these books? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, you know, one of the things I've said about how to have an enemy talk a little bit about in the preface is, you know, I, I don't know how to change people's minds. Like that is not, um, that is not the, like, I don't think like, oh, I'm going to write this and I'm going to talk these people into being okay with conflict. Like, I wrote this for us. Like, I wrote for people who are already invested in the work of new creation, um, who have already said, I want to be in the struggle. I want to know how to do that well. I want to be encouraged in it. I want the resources I need. And so, yeah, so I mean, I get a lot of questions about the Purple Church. Do you guys have that there? Do you guys have the Purple Church? Okay, so this is in, in the United States, it's like red, Republicans oh, and Democrats are blue. And when you oh, make so the church, <laughs> Purple Church. Um, so I get questions all the time um, about like, what about the Purple Church? And I'm like, hey, you go, you do your thing. I don't know how to do that. All I know how to do is to build a new world. Um, mm. and, um, and we have everything we need right here. Um, and I think that there, I absolutely believe people can change and I have changed. Um, and I think that is often an act of the Holy Spirit breaking mm. through something in us in all sorts of ways. Um, and I trust that God is already at that work among us. Um, um, but the place where I, where I want this book to sort of be is for people who are like, maybe kind of have felt like they, like they've been like gaslighted for the past few years about like, wait a second, like something really bad is happening here. And you're telling me like, I just have to get along with everybody. Like that just doesn't feel like a sufficient answer. And, and to say, well, well, here's Jesus. Um, this is, this is the word that has been given to us. It is the word that says, um, I will, I will tear down the mighty from their thrones. Um, and let's continue to put ourselves next to that Jesus. And here's just another book about how to do that. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's one of um, my pet peeves. And I, even in my book, I, I start off just teasing like this idea of, you know, 
everyone wanting to meet in the middle of everything, right? Um, and just the idea of like, what does it mean to go halvesies, right? With evil um, yeah. is just deeply uh, on the Holocaust, right? Yeah. On the Holocaust and yeah. apartheid and slavery. We would never, yeah. nobody would ever say that now, but yet they want to in our current iterations of evil um, to just meet halfway on everything. And I think that is a actually quite distorted and disfigured way of um, realizing and dealing with our ethical landscape um, and, and dealing with the responsibilities of faithfulness for our present moment as well. Yeah. 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 I try not to be too annoyed by the third way language because it is, I think there is something really powerful about it, but and Drew, you know, you and I, I think we know, we we hear this a lot. This third third way in the U.S. I'm not sure about you, Jared. Um, I think you're familiar with it. Yeah. Are you? Yeah. But it's got this weird connotation for a lot of us outside. I remember reading um, uh, Walter Wink using it. I read it in the early 2000s, and it's the same time that Tony Blair was talking about third way uh, politics for Labour in the U.K. Um, so it's it's kind of like um, the watering down of ways. the the Labour tradition um, yeah. of like and selling out to neoliberalism. So for different reasons, for some of us elsewhere in the world, it's got this kind of other yucky kind of yeah. connotation. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. Well, what I what I think is a helpful reminder <laughs> um, to people who hear that language is where it really comes from is the Radical Reformation was, was neither Catholic nor Lutheran, right, or Zwinglian, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. it was something else. But that something else was not the middle of Catholicism. No. It was not no, like was not. a yeah. halfway Catholicism, yeah. halfway Lutheranism. It was like people got martyred. Like it was like considered a social outrage, um, a like politically dangerous movement where we have these stories of these women, you know, in like in acts of iconoclasm or like throwing priests into the street and taking over their pulpits or like finding these guys drunk in the morning outside their pubs and like baptizing them in these giant like water bowl like this is like this radical um anti-state dangerous movement um that is what it meant to be a third way um and that that sounds a lot like jesus yeah. I always remind folks that uh, the other aspect that I think gets lost in the 16th century Anabaptism is like it's taking part, like it's feeding off the energy of the poor peasants' rebellions and all That's these right. other things that are happening at that moment yep. as well, right? And so yeah. um, when we erase all of that, um, then it makes Anabaptism, the 16th century Anabaptism, this really safe kind of sanitized, domesticated version of itself. And I think um, you really lose some of the, the power of it. Uh, I'm really interested in, in thinking, the one thing that um, I've wrestled with with the Gospel of Luke, I'm curious your thoughts on this, Melissa. Um, so Luke, I mean, one of the reasons initially of like, Luke, my favorite gospel, right? Because he's calling names, there's power dynamics. It's flipping everything on its head. It's the great social reversal, right? We see that pretty consistently. But the one place um, it's like, Pilot gets off actually fairly clean, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, compared to the other gospels, and I know there's all kinds of different theories on why, um, but you see the struggle there in terms of the inconsistency almost in Luke's gospel. I don't think it's a matter of Jesus as much as it is Luke in his own lo social location, right, as he's writing. Um, but though my 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 one 
maybe pushback to that reading is, is maybe it is a little bit more dangerous for him to be able to talk about Rome explicitly. And that's why Herod gets so much emphasis because he's mm. maybe a different manifestation of Rome, but more local that you can kind of call out that manifestation more. And so then he can, Jesus can call Herod that box, right? At that right. moment, which is even more radical than so much of what we see. But anyway, I don't know if you've picked up on that, which it doesn't always feel to jive with the rest of how radical we see like, like, you know, the Magnificat, right? And just the way that marriage is naming names and exposing and unveiling the power dynamics that exist hmm. within their society. Yeah. 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 You know, when I think about Pilate, I think about, actually, Pilate is so helpful for me because Pilate is sort of like Hannah Arndt's like banality of evil, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like you, like you have the company man, who's just doing his job, you know, I'm just going to work. I don't have anything to do with this. This is all these people. They want me to do these things. And here I am just trying to go along. Um, and so, so for me, it, it's been really, because that is how white people are in our country, right? Like that, um, yeah. it's this sort of, um, if I can just like, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. I don't, I don't have any responsibility here. This is out of my hands. Um, and so, so I know I'm going to get like a Mennonite yellow card for this, but, but I, what I do love about the creeds um, is that there is the, is like the two people who are preserved in the creeds right. are Mary and Pilate. Right. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I talk yeah. a little bit about Rowan Williams mentioning this in um, in the first book that Rowan Williams has this great line that he says, the reason that we have Pilate and Mary mentioned in the Nicene Creed is Mary is the one who says yes in the story that we just heard. And Pilate is the one who says no. Wow. Um, and so, and because it's funny, because you would think the creeds would think like, oh, like, why wouldn't you mention Herod? Like, like, like Herod is like, but, but the one whose name is recited week after week is the company the company middleman the one who's just trying to get everybody to get along who is trying to keep both sides calm and see if he can solve all the problems if you could just tell me jesus mm -hmm. you know why give me a reason to let you go um and jesus refuses um to to sort of take the bait on that i find it fascinating even how people like use the expression i'm washing my hands of this without the irony of where that features in the story right. that's that's not a good thing stop washing yep. your hands and stuff like <laughs> it's amazing yeah yeah it's true so so where do you see this practice that mary's embodying like what does this look like for us what is how, how are we navigating you know our society if we were going to kind of take mary seriously and the witness of mary um what, what does that look like yeah. And Melissa, if I could build on Drew's question, I, I'd love um, specifically uh, if I, I, I loved that, um, like uh, Ephraim, as well as James Cone, um, as well, some of your reflections on um, Mary and um, uh, uh, the priestly duty, um, or, mm. or, albeit read through a, um, a, a leveling, uh, an inversing of um, what the priestly caste is about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So kind of to start where we see, you know, at, 
like the the ministry of Mary, the ministry of Mary's song, um, that I think is is present to us in so many places, um, and and I think it's it's um it's like uh, the the re- like these moments of recognition that and so one of the, one that comes to mind is when Brie Newsom climbed the flagpole and was reciting a psalm the whole way up like saying this like imprecatory song over the confederate flag and like took it down like Mm -hmm. i still have a picture of her on that flagpole in my in my office um because it is it's these these moments where um and, and for me, these are often uh, often black women, um, especially here in the South, of these moments of um, uh, where the the um, wh- where women will not be disappeared um, from uh, from from the action of God's story that is unfolding in the world, um, um, despite every effort every effort of the world to disappear the women from that story and you know in the in the united states we we just we have a genocide of black women um and you know significantly more likely to die in childbirth significantly more likely to have to 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 experience infant or or child uh, early child death um of of black children um and so so the the refusal to to be disappeared um, and to and to let these stories be present to us, um, um, it's just that it feels like this happens. You have these moments. You're like, oh wow, that is this is Mary's. I'm hearing Mary's song again, um, and yeah. And so to I think to connect that back to to the book, and I wrote a chapter about Mary because this is such an important piece um, of helping us to understand enmity in the Bible because Mary really lays it out. Um, and, and, and one of the, um, one of sort of the, the, the recognitions, both through Ephraim the Syrians writing, um, through some Jesuit priests who, who've written about this is, um, one of the things I think we often overlook is that, is that like when, what we do in, in our Eucharistic work is we, like, uh, the pastor, the, the minister offers Jesus to the community, mm-hmm. um, and, and the very first person to do that is Mary. The, she is the first to offer Jesus to the world, um, and so, um, so we have this um, not only Mary as a prophet, but also as a priest in in the story, um, and and so she she plays both of this these roles, this prophetic role here. Um, and then she's about to enter into the priestly role alongside of that, which I think is just a really like, and that's how this gospel begins with Mary's dual roles taking unfolding before us. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So good. So good. So just to make it plain, how, how do we um, have enemies? <laughs> That's that's an easy question, Drew. Thank you for that one. Um, <laughs> well, I I mean the first I think really important thing is like to admit that you do. <laughs> I mean that's um, I, right. Like I mean seriously, like this is in denial. Yes, there's so many people. Like I have no enemies. Right, I have no enemies. Or 
or the, and then maybe the next thing is like to be okay with that, right? You yeah. know, I think this is um, when it, just one of the very basic, like very deeply biblicist commitments of that I have is like when Jesus says to love your enemies, it means you have to have enemies because you can't love something that you don't have. That's my literalist reading, my fundamentalist reading of that scripture is like, you have to have enemies. Um, And so then the question is, who are your enemies and to whom are you an enemy? Right. So, so both of those questions are always working on us at the same time. Um, And so the first part of the book, I think, is more about that first question. who are the who are the enemies that we see in the bible like what's the what's the texture of enmity in scripture because if we're for christians or at least for me that's the thing that i care about um and we've talked about it a couple times and 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 what it always comes down to is power um that is what separates um difference from enmity the, 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 the thing that's inserted into the equation is power. And when someone has power over another to harm, to wound, to oppress, that is the territory where enmity grows, like that's where it grows. Um, and then the second part of the book is sort of asking that second question, to whom am I an enemy? Um, and so that, that gets into chapters about our relationship to money because of Jesus Theme, seems to think that money is a like a mm-hmm. the, is also the place that where a lot of our enmities are born. Family, because Jesus is radically yeah. anti-family throughout the yeah. Gospels. Um, whiteness, because um, that is the demonic presence that is um, that has shaped the United States and much of the world. Um, and then the end of en- enemies, um, which is um, just reading revelation with um james baldwin so mm-hmm. uh, as as a reading partner um to sort of live give the final word to james baldwin as um i recommend we all do in this life um so, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's so timely so um not i feel like it can't be a humble brag but i was in dialogue with eddie glaude about his book begin again yesterday so um, having good conversations. Oh, that's great. Yeah, James he's Baldwin. And so, yeah, so tiny. yeah, he knows so much about James Baldwin. So, yes, yeah. yes. And yes. surprisingly, he can actually write in a way that pays homage to Baldwin, mm. which is even maybe more difficult given like you're dealing yeah. with one of the greats. Like, goodness. Right. Yeah. Yep. 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 So good. Mm. Melissa, um, this has been wonderful. Thank you for your time. Um, uh, if you're willing, uh, those who joined us live, I'm sure have questions, but for rounding out the um, part that's going to go on the podcast, um, we're aware that you're a pastor um, and that you're committed to uh, praying uh, for and with people. We're wondering, um, particularly for those who, because we're not talking like any old enemies, um, what is, uh, what's implied in um, uh, what's being said is that hopefully we might have the same enemies as our Lord. Mm, right. <laughs> we, we, we might actually um, uh, not have an enemy of Jesus's agenda, but uh, have enemies, those who are um, against uh, what Jesus in, embodies. Um, I'm wondering, uh, would you be willing as a way of um, closing out this time, w- would you pray for our listeners, particularly those who um, are struggling maybe with uh, the, the courage to actually um, have enemies um, uh, or those who were just tired and traumatized by having enemies. 
Mm, yes, I that that would be um, an honor. I would love thank to do you. that. No, thank you. Uh, holy God, our creator and redeemer, you are the God of Tamar, um, robbed of her dignity and her future. You are the God of Leah, pushed aside and despised. You are the God of Esau, stolen from and driven away. You are the God of those who wait and those who long for freedom. You are the God of those who weep and those who wail. And God, uh, we know that um, we find ourselves there, our bodies building into systems of destruction and violence. Uh, and only you can take that apart, can remove us from our participation and our, uh, our place in the harm to those whom you have called beloved. And God, we name our anger. We name our rage at the violence of our world, of those who war and destroy and rape and kill. And we know, God, that we can give that anger to you because you are just and holy. Lord, may your will be done. May we be able to see the goodness of your life extend upon the earth as we are rebuilt into the kingdom of God, the reign of God's love, as you bring us once more to the good news that says you are holy and you are beloved. Amen. Thank you. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.